Father, we, also, we ask that you would anoint now the teaching of your word, that you would plant your word deep in our hearts and change our lives and make us a house of prayer for all nations. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was this guy. He was a Sunday school teacher of preschoolers. And he decided to ask his class of preschoolers a question. So he asked this question. He says, uh, where is Jesus today? Well, Stephen raised his hand and said, he's in heaven. And then Mary, little Mary quickly blurred out, no, he's in my heart. And then little Johnny said, I know, I know, he's in our bathroom. Well, the class kind of all froze and looked at the teacher, and he was taken back a little bit. And he thought about it, and he said, well, why do, you, why do you say that, Johnny? He said, because every morning my father bangs on the door and says, good Lord, are you still in there? It's okay if uh, children's theology is a little bit fuzzy, but it's not okay if a Christian adults don't really have a right view of God and how to relate with him. In our Pray Always series, we really want to focus on one of the key ways in which we relate to God. We want to all really spend time growing in depth in our prayer life. You know, we're really excited about this series, and again, you're going to get, I think, a lot out of coming on Sundays or tuning in on Sundays, but you're going to get so much more if you are part of one of our Pray Always small groups and you're interacting with people about the subject and helping form Christ in each other and developing each other's prayer life. So I really encourage you to be in one of these small groups. Now, last week, I kind of ramped up to this Pray Always series by talking about the priority of prayer and answering the question, why pray? I just want to remind you a little bit about what we talked about last week. Remember, Jesus told the disciples this. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing. They had resolve. Remember, they had resolved that they would stay true to Christ, even if it cost them their lives. They had resolved. Jesus said, your spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Without prayer, you won't have the strength to handle what's coming. He said, there's a temptation coming. And the temptation was a temptation to defect spiritually. There's a temptation coming that even if you have resolved, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, you will not be able to pull off what you need to be able to do without the strength that God provides with prayer. So he says, pray that you enter not into temptation. And we talked about the fact that all temptation has as its goal our spiritual defection. So it's so crucial that we have a prayer life that is powerful in the days to come because there are things coming in our future that we will be unable to handle if we don't really have a prayer life. And so this Pray Always series is for all of us, not just for some. It's for all of us to go deeper and become stronger in our prayer life. So I want to talk about a second, really, answer to the why prayer, pray question today by talking about the subject of the purpose of prayer. See, I believe that most Christians don't really know the purpose of prayer. I think if you gave a survey out to all the Christians on planet Earth and said, what is the purpose of prayer? I think you'd have so many different answers. But there is one overriding answer 
that we need to know. Because if we understand the purpose of prayer from God's perspective, I think it'll cause all of us to know that we must pray. We must pray. If you study the Bible carefully, you discover that history really is the story of salvation and redemption. Or as theologians called it, history really is salvation history. It's all about salvation. And God wants each one of us to be a participant in salvation history. Now, what does that mean? Of course, that means he wants us to be saved and we're a participant of salvation history that way. But more than that, he wants us to be able to help other people get saved and we are participants in that way. But even more than that, we are participants of salvation history in that we participate in setting things right that are wrong in the world. This morning, I want you to notice some, one of the key ways that God wants us to participate in salvation history. So if you've got your Bibles, you can look at Revelation 8. There's Bibles in the seat back in front of you, but we'll also put these verses up on the screen so you can follow along. Because in Revelation 8, there is an amazing passage. Now, what's been going on in the book of Revelation up to chapter 8 is the breaking of the seven seals, seven seals that keep a scroll from being opened. And each of these breaking of these seven seals is an event that occurs leading up to the scroll being opened and the outpouring of the end time wrath of God. Now, right before they last Right before the scroll is opened and the wrath of God is poured out through the trumpet judgments, something very amazing, I think, happens, very remarkable. Let's read about it. Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand in God's presence, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came with a gold censer and stood at the altar. He was given a large quantity of incense to offer on the gold altar before the throne, along with the prayers of all the saints. The smoke from the incense and the prayers of the saints went up from the angel's hand to God. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. Then there were peals of thunder, noises, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now here's what the writer is talking about here. I mean, usually we think about events on earth being interrupted by things that go on in heaven, actions taken in heaven. But here in this scene, it's like the other way around. All of heaven comes to a standstill. All of heaven becomes quiet. Think about the, the endless songs of the heavenly host, of the angels who are singing constantly in the four living creatures day and night. All of that stops. Heaven becomes quiet. Why? So the prayers of the saints, saints like you and me, and 
prayers like yours and prayers like mine can come up and rise up before God. Now, these prayers of the saints are heard, and they matter, and then there is an impact on the earth. These prayers interrupt heaven, and what goes on on the earth next happens really as a result of the fact that people pray. See, what I simply want us to understand is this. History doesn't belong to who we think it belongs to. It doesn't belong to the humanly powerful people in high places of authority. It doesn't belong to the wealthy who think they can buy and change the course of events. It doesn't belong to armies in their power. It doesn't belong to corporations. It doesn't belong to the media, no matter how much they try to determine it. History, according to the Bible, belongs to those who pray. If we would see, I think, life from God's perspective, we would all realize that we must pray. I mean, the fact that, I mean, our prayers are actually forging out history. You know, when we see the Lord in that moment when we come face to face with him, the Bible tells us that we are going to know as we're known. And I think one of the things we're going to be amazed about in that moment when we know as we are known is how much of history came about because somebody prayed it in. Why must we pray? The answer is because our prayers are determining more of the outcome of history, I think, than any of us can possibly imagine. Let's look at another passage. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we are right now seated with Christ. As believers in Christ, we're seated with him. What is he sitting on? What is Christ sitting on? He's sitting on a throne. What do you do from a throne? You rule. So how is it that we are ruling with Christ right now? Because that's the picture. In what way are we ruling with Christ right now? In what way do we have a say about the future, about history right now? Well, the answer is, is through our prayers. That we are history makers in our prayer lives. That's the truth of the scriptures. History belongs to those who pray. Now, again, I think it's going to be just astonishing on that day when we know as we're known to think about, you mean that happened and that happened and that happened because somebody prayed it in? And the answer is going to be, yes, it did. History is being determined by the prayers of the saints more than any of us imagine. Let me give you an example of how history is being determined by the prayers of God's people. I just want to look at one. There's so many we could turn to. Let's look at one in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 22. Because in Ezekiel 22, verse 29 through 31, something really amazing is written here. It says this, The people of the land, this is again God is speaking, 
through the prophet Ezekiel, the people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, and they have wronged the poor and needy and have oppressed the sojourner without justice. Here's what God says. Now listen. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it. But I found no one. Thus, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord God. I mean, think about this. Wait a minute. You mean history, God, would have been different? If you would have found just one man who would have stood in the gap and prayed and interceded, it would have changed history? That's what he says. If I would have just found one, just one who would have stood in the gap and interceded, then I wouldn't have destroyed the land, but I found none. So I had to bring my judgment. God was looking for just one man to stand in the gap, just one. And he wouldn't have destroyed the land, but he found none. Again, history is being determined right now not primarily by kings and parliaments and the rich and the famous, but history is primarily being determined by those who pray. In Genesis 1, we have the creation decree. Let's just read it. You're familiar with it, but let's look at it again. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule. Notice that. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's intention from the very beginning when he made man and woman, Adam and Eve, was to have a perfect relationship and communion with them and for them to rule under him, but to rule the earth. That was his intention from the beginning. But what happened? What happened was Lucifer, the head cherub, the leader of the angelic host, had an attempted coup. He tried to take a throne, the throne of God. He somehow enlisted a third of the angels to join him in his rebellion. Of course, the rebellion was instantly a failure, and God cast them out of heaven. Lucifer, who is Satan, and his angels following him, who are now demons, cast them down, the Bible says, to the earth. He cast them down to the earth where he has put man and woman and put everything under their feet. They're ruling everything on the earth, everything. And he cast Lucifer, who is Satan now, and those demons down to the earth where everything's under the feet of a man. So where does that put Lucifer? Where does that put Satan? That puts him under the feet of a man. Does he like that? He hates that. So what does he do? He devises a way in which he can somehow subvert that. Somehow he can get, you know, get man to lose his authority so he can rule the earth, so Lucifer can rule the earth. So what does he do? He gets man to sin. If man sins, then he can subvert man's authority and he can rule the earth. And that's exactly what happens. That's why we, in Genesis chapter 3, we find that is what the devil's up to. 
That is his main goal. Get man to sin. Get Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit and sin. Why? So he can usurp their authority and he can rule the earth. It wasn't the kingdom he wanted. He wanted heaven, but it's one he'll settle for. He'll take earth. And that's what he does. That's why it says in 1 John 5, 19, that during this time, this New Testament age, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So Satan got his kingdom. Again, it wasn't the one he wanted, but it's one he settles for. But here's, here's the key. But God, even before we leave Genesis chapter 3, God makes an amazing promise. Here's what he says. He actually speaks this to the devil. Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He the seed of the woman, shall bruise you, devil, on the head. And you, devil, shall bruise him, the seed of the woman, on the heel. So this promise of a future deliverer, of course, is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. When Jesus Christ hangs on the cross and suffers and dies, he fixes the two things that were lost at the fall. Remember the two things? Communion with God, perfect, ruling over the earth, all, all of the rule of the earth is under the feet of a man. All that was lost at the fall. Man and woman sinned. But now Jesus comes when he hangs on the cross. He bears our sin, absorbs our judgment. So now what? We can have sins forgiven and we can have communion with God. But more than that, and most Christians don't understand this piece. They haven't been taught this. Another thing happens is that when he hangs there on the cross, when Jesus is hanging there, he, the devil is put back underneath his feet. That's why he is wounded on the heel. Yeah, he suffers and dies, and that's, a, and that's a mortal wound, but he is crushing the head of the devil as he hangs there. And the devil is being put back under the feet of a man, the God-man. Jesus Christ. Now I want to show you something very important. Ephesians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers. He prays this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule, listen to this now, Christ is seated, let's get a picture of this, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things, all things, in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Listen to this now, the church, it's us, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus won the decisive victory over sin, death, and the devil at the cross. Then he's raised from the dead, he ascends into heaven, 
And all things are put under his feet. He is ruling over all things right now. He's ruling. All things are under his feet. But notice what it says. It says that we, the church, are his body. And he's the head now. He's the head of the body, the church. And we're the, we are his body. So get, get a load of this now. So if all things are under Christ's feet and we are his body, all things including the devil are under his feet and we are his body, where does that put the devil in relationship to us? under our feet. See, the original intention of God was for mankind to rule with him in partnership and ruling with him. And what we see here is key that we are his body and we are back in partnership. We're back in partnership. Ruling. Everything is under our feet. So here's my question. So how is it that we are ruling right now? How is it? And I want to tell you the primary way is through our prayers. We are ruling. We are making history through our prayers. So the picture we have in Ephesians chapter 2 of being seated with Christ, this picture is a picture of ruling with Christ. How do we do that? We primarily do this through our prayers. History belongs to to those who pray. Let me show you something else. God's original intention was for mankind to rule the earth under perfect relationship, relationship with him, but to rule. But also, it is going to be his intention that we do this in the millennial kingdom when Christ comes again and rules on the earth for a thousand years, and that we do this with him for eternity. Notice what it says. Revelation 5, verse 10. You have made them that is us, to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they, that is us, will reign upon the earth. So that's when Christ comes, sets up his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. Revelation 26, 20 verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. That'll be us. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests, talking about us, priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. That will be us. Okay, what, what about when the thousand years is over? Revelation 22, verse 5. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will what? Reign forever. And ever, and that is us. Our ruling in partnership with the triune God was his original intention, and it's going to be what we do for eternity. And in the meantime, what are we doing? Are we not ruling now? Yes, we are. How? Primarily through our prayers. We are seated with him in heavenly places, and we are ruling in our prayer life. And I tell you what, I think, I think this is all part of a training program. I think if we're going to rule in the millennial kingdom and we're going to rule forever and ever, we ought to start getting some training. And we are, this is an internship. We are learning how to rule with Christ right now in our prayer life. 
I tell you what, if that grabs your heart and you are a history maker in your prayer life, it'll change the way you pray. It'll change how much you pray. It'll change the way you pray, realizing that everything is under your feet. If you will just take it. But the devil doesn't want you to take it. And so he has all these strategies to try to keep you from taking a hold of that. And I want to quickly just mention a few of them. Strategy number one, ignorance. Most Christians are ignorant of all this. Most Christians are ignorant of who they are in Christ. They're ignorant of what they're here for. They, just want, they think they're supposed to behave themselves. They sign, you know, they, they raise their hand, pray to receive Christ, and now they just want to live their life in peace and go to heaven when they die. And so the devil keeps them in ignorance. And this pray always, pray always series is that we are not ignorant. There's so much we're going to cover in this series. You want to be part of this so you can grab a hold of who you are and why you're here. Satanic strategy number two, unbelief. He convinces so many Christians that nothing's going to happen if you pray, so why bother? And by the way, I tell you, we tend to function, a lot of Christians tend to function like this. There's something that needs to be done. What do you do? You start making phone calls. You start texting. You start emailing. You start posting. You start organizing. You start planning. And you don't pray. And when that happens, we give our, our, true, our true conviction about prayer when we act like that. Unbelief. If we really believe that we're seated with Christ and we're history makers in prayer life, we would pray. Strategy number three the devil uses to keep people from seizing their prayer life, I think, really is just simply love of ease. We just don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to work. And by the way, uh, I can't, bl can't blame most of us for this because we've had leaders who taught us this. We've had leaders who, because they wanted a way out, gave us a theology so we could have a way out. What I mean by that? Theology that goes something like this. We pray ever so briefly and with no intensity, and if it doesn't happen, we just say it wasn't God's will. Where does that come from? If we're praying the Word of God by the Spirit of God, then we know we should persist until we get what we're asking for. Strategy number four the devil uses is distraction. He just tries to get us busy doing so many other things. But you know what? The devil is not afraid of, church of prayerless church activities. He's not afraid of them. He's not afraid of prayerless Bible studies. He's not afraid of prayerless evangelism. What he's concerned is, is what, when, people, when we begin to pray, that's when he trembles. Last strategy the devil uses that I'll mention is disappointment, and this is huge. When the answers didn't come the way we thought they would, and when we thought they should, we get disappointed. And some people in their disappointment just stop praying altogether. This is where true faith comes in. Faith in all the promises of God. The God, you said it. It didn't come the way I thought it, thought it should or when, when I wanted it to. But Lord, your word says this, and I'm going to go back to faith. Yes. And believe it, and believe you got a better time and a better way than I thought. Amen. And we got to grab hold of that. Some of you right now are stuck in disappointment. This is where you got to shake it off. You don't understand what happened or why it happened, but you know what? One day you will. And one day you're going to say, of course. Now I get it. In the meantime, we could keep believing the promises of God.
and keep persisting until we get what we're asking for. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. You have been called into an amazing partnership. You are a history maker in your prayer life. So what will you do with that? My exhortation to you is to pray. Pray hard and pray persistently. Why? Because history belongs to those who pray. History belongs to us. Let's stand, and I want to just close by praying through these five strategies that some of us might be stumbled, you know, stumbled because they've come to us. I want us to take time and just pray through them. Let's pray. Father, we pray that during this, this, these weeks that none of us would be ignorant, that Satan couldn't keep us from praying because of ignorance, that we would learn your ways, learn your word, learn who we are, learn how to pray. So we pray, Lord, that you would enable us to do that. We ask you for the grace. I pray that none who come and none who are online would miss all that you have for us in Jesus' name. Also, Lord, we pray against, first of all, we just confess, Lord, unbelief at times. We confess, Lord, that our actions have shown unbelief. When prayer is like the last thing we tack on instead of the first thing we do every time we have a situation. So, Lord, we just confess unbelief. And we just thank you for your forgiveness and your cleansing. And, Lord, I would pray that you would cause faith to rise up in us, that we would hold strong to your promises, Lord, and cling to them. And just can remind you of them day and night. But, Lord, you said this and you said this, Lord. And we stand on it. Lord, we also confess our love of ease. We confess, Lord, that we have been lazy in our prayer lives, that we have been concerned more about our comfort and our pleasure than your kingdom. Forgive us, Lord. Cleanse us of that. We pray, Lord, make us mighty, mighty men and women of valor and faith and strength. And, Lord, we also confess that we have been distracted by so many things and we've wasted so much time. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would enable us to focus for what we're here for, what we're called for. These days, O oh Lord, that you saved us, just like, Lord, the miracle in, in Cana, Lord, you saved the best for last. Lord, you have saved us for these days because you have made us, Lord, to be a people who will pray. So, Lord, keep us from distraction. Finally, Lord, heal us from the pains of disappointment, Lord, that are really rooted ultimately in unbelief. And Lord, as we've confessed that, well, Lord, we're, we're believing you again. Lord, right now we're taking back, and I believe some of you right now, so there's some things you've given up on praying for that right now the Lord's saying, take it back. Right. Take it back and say, okay, Lord, I don't understand what's happened back there, but Lord, I'm believing again. I'm believing again, and I'm standing on it <clears throat> and trusting you for it. In the name of Jesus. Lord, this week I pray you'd find us you find us praying more and more intensely and more faithfully than ever before. That we begin to, you just stir a hunger in us to want to be, you know, just have passion for the Son of God and, and concern for the kingdom of God like never before. We pray, Lord, that you would just enable all of us to be connected in groups that really, really can grow in and develop in. And that you really take us, Lord, not the church that knows more about prayer, but the church that knows really how and does this in the days to come, does become a house of prayer for all nations. And we pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.